to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. We're so glad that you've joined us again on Mission 150. I'm David Trim. And I am Sam Nevis. David, I'm excited today because we'll be talking about the most important Adventist missionary that probably none of our listeners have ever heard of. <laughs> That's right. George D. Keogh. Tell yes. me more about him. So Keogh is an extraordinary Adventist missionary. Uh, he works in Egypt for 19 years, more than nine, for almost 20 years. He then goes back to Europe and to his homeland of Britain. Uh, but then he returns to the Middle East as president of the Arabic Union mission in 1937, stays there for five years, goes to the General Conference to the newly founded Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary in order to teach an innovative course on how to do mission to Muslims. Something that unfortunately after he goes back to Britain in 1946, it gets closed down. And we don't have anything like that again for nearly 60 years, for, for more than 50 years. So he was really a pioneer. Yes. And then at the age of 65, which is generally retirement age, he goes back to the Middle East to be head of the radio uh, ministry in the Middle East. And he works there for another eight years. And only then does he finally and reluctantly make a final return to his homeland because for him, and I think for him, the Middle East almost is his, his homeland. Um, so he's extraordinary and he is this remarkable mission innovator. It seems that he understood that different cultures will need a different message. That's absolutely right. That's the crux of his method, in fact. Same content, but delivered in a different way so people would understand it. Yeah, sometimes a little bit of difference on the content. For example, he writes about how if you want to deal with Muslims, you can't start with the Trinity because the Trinity is uh, something they see as, as being polytheistic and you have to start with other things. But it, these, are just, these are just minor tweaks of the message but, and, and really are, are almost a more cultural thing. This shows a level of sophistication in our mission because at first we're just sending missionaries who are going to learn the language. And by language... Or in Keo's case, as we'll see in a moment, not learn the language. Okay. <laughs> but usually that, that's the case. You learn the language as in the different uh, dialect or tongue. Yes. And then you communicate what you came to communicate. Right. Did it take a few decades for us to realize or is Keo one of the first that really gets this? It did take. And if you look at Andrews, for example, in Europe, he's not very sensitive to local culture. And Loughborough, the first missionary to Britain, isn't sensitive to local culture. By the end of the 20th century, you're beginning to have missionaries who do and say, you know, we can't go as Americans. William A. Spicer, the great Adventist mission visionary who we talked about on a previous episode, actually gives an address to the General Conference and says, you can't go to the rest of the world as an American. And you can't even be an American in America because we are people who aspire to a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom in the language of Hebrews 11. And, you know, you have to communicate Jesus. And if you, if you go as an American, you've immediately put an obstacle between yourself and everybody who isn't an American. And so the key is to, to, to preach Jesus. And he says that in 1901. So you're getting a sense there of, of, a, of, a, of a, a change. But I think for many missionaries, they're not quite clear on how to do it and there isn't training on how to do it. 
Keo is important because he, he is an innovator and he teaches people to, to be culturally sensitive as well. But let's just say a little bit more about him. He's born in 1882 in the city of Glasgow in Scotland, but his parents actually came from Northern Ireland. It's just a short distance of sea between Scotland and Ireland. There's a lot of going to and fro. And in fact, his family moved back to Northern Ireland to the region of Ulster when he was just a small boy. So he grew up in the town of Portadown in Northern Ireland. When he was 13, an Adventist minister ran a mission near his hometown. And when he was 14, he was baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist. I went to school with one of his great, great, great uh, grandchildren, Adam Keogh, who was a pastor in right. Belfast Church for many years. But I had no idea that this was yes. one of his relatives. In fact, yes. the first time I'm hearing about him is today as we are <laughs> recording this. So I'm fascinated right. to see this, this kind of background. Keogh, when he was 20, went to the new Adventist college that had just been founded, what today is Newbold College, but was then called Duncombe Hall College. And he volunteered to be a missionary to Africa. And he was there for nearly five years and in 1906, the General Conference Committee decided to call him to Syria. We don't know how that happened. We just have a record of the, the action in the General Conference Committee minutes. But that got changed. It wasn't Syria, but it was still what we would call the Middle East. Back then, they would have said the Near East. Um, and he doesn't hear about it at first. It's in 1907, when he's about to finish, that he gets a message from the British Union, you've actually been called to Egypt. And he later, in later life, he writes to a, a friend and describes this and says how he, he went to the brethren and said, but I've been training to be a missionary in Africa, to which he said the answer he was given, Egypt is in Africa. Wow. <laughs> but of course... That shows the level of nuance. And, and yeah. But he was thinking of, of East Africa or maybe West, you know, he was thinking of, 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 of his hero was Livingston. So he was thinking of being another Livingston, not going to the Arabic region. In 1908, on April 16, George married Mary Ann, who had been his, he'd, they'd both been students at the college. And in August, they went to Egypt. Again, same, same principle we talked about before. You get uh, married. Finish the studies, get married and go. And then you go because a missionary needs to be married, or at least a man does. They're willing to send single women, but they're not willing to send single men because the assumption is, of course, that Today, we would take a different view, but the assumption is that men have certain needs, certain lusts, and if you don't cater for it with a wife, then they'll, they'll be tempted and, and might fall in the mission field. It's just safer that it's way. safer that way, mm. yes. And also, you know, they understand probably that uh, it's better to send people as couples because they can support each other. Yeah. So he arrived in Egypt in September. Sam, Adventist missionaries had been working in the country since 1899. But after nearly 10 years, there were only seven local believers when the Keos arrived. And actually, the missionaries of the time weren't even trying really to reach local people. They were running a vegetarian restaurant in Cairo, which by definition appealed only to the elite and probably only to the expatriate and certainly had no appeal to or couldn't even be afforded by the great mass of the people. They were trying to start a literature work when 95% of the population were illiterate. So we were trying to use methods that worked elsewhere. Yes. But did not work in Egypt. Right. Because, yes, the vegetarian restaurant, the publishing, these things did work in other places. But there was no sensitivity to the fact that they didn't work in Egypt. And you actually talked about 
learning the language. Kia, when he arrived, one of the first questions he asked is, okay, where do I learn Arabic? And the answer was, you don't. Because we can't reach the local people. That's the level of, of almost despair, you might say, that they've given up on. We can't reach the local people. So there's no point you learning the local language. We're going to work amongst the, the very sizable expatriate business community in Egypt. To which Keogh replies, not in so many words, but his reply is roughly along the lines of, if you're not learning the language, it's not surprising you're not learning, that you're not reaching the local people. So Keogh learned Arabic despite church leaders. because Not because of them. No. And actually, you know, Keogh is from Northern Ireland. His wife is from Yorkshire. We as, as people, as natives or people who lived in Britain a very long time, know that these two regions have something in common, which is that people who are from them are very determined, they're very self-reliant, and they don't take direction easily from other people. <laughs> and that was, a, that was a good thing. Because That's a great way to put it. Keo yeah. basically says, I'm going to learn Arabic. And so he get, takes the initiative and he learns the local language. Now, his wife was actually pregnant when they went out to Egypt, and their first son was born in, in Cairo in February 1909. So Keogh later says it took him about six months to learn Arabic to a functional level. And then he, but he keeps studying it because he wants to be able to write it and read it. Um, but having learned it, he then has, what do you do with it? Because the church doesn't have any ministry that will allow him to meet ordinary Egyptian people because they're focused on expatriates. David, they, you, we're talking about 10 years. Am I getting this right? 1899? To 1909. So less than a decade. About a decade. Yeah. Did and they give up too soon? Well, they did because Keogh goes on to prove that you can do something else. So the first thing Keogh does is, is, is okay, he, what can I do now that I've learned Arabic? What can I do to meet a local person? So he prays to God. What can I do to meet a local? They're all over. They're but, all over. The, but, but the church has no projects that no, involve them. And the Adventist missionary is on the side of the Nile in Cairo that the Westerners live the expats and the wealthy the small wealthy elite live in so they don't even have the opportunity to meet somebody so keo starts going to the railway station every morning now at the time it was not legal for christians to witness to muslims but they can answer questions and so he prays to god and says god send me someone who will ask me a question about the bible hmm. And he takes a packed lunch and he goes and sits in Cairo railway station every day from breakfast until after lunch, waiting for somebody to come. Now, it takes a while, but eventually somebody does come, a man called Azagali, who was actually a Muslim. And there had been European missionaries come to his village and then given up in despair because nobody, Sam, at this stage was having any success reaching Muslims. Nobody's in no denomination. No, 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 no not even Catholics, Catholics Protestants, either. none of them. That you could, you could measure the number of converts they were having on the, hands of, on the fingers of one hand. So these European missionaries had, or American missionaries had come, they'd gone, but they'd left Bibles behind. And so Azza and some of his friends said, okay, well, what, what is this Christian Bible? Let's have a look at it. And they read it and they had various questions, but there was nobody they could in ask. In Arabic. In Arabic, yes. Mm -hmm. But there was nobody they could ask. Yes, the Bible had been translated. So they say, well, go to Cairo. Maybe you can find one of these Christians 
and you can ask him about your questions. So they the came to ask questions, to find somebody to ask a question to. They specifically came to Cairo. They took the train to Cairo. They got off the train and who they see a Westerner sitting there and it's George Keogh. So they go up to him and say, sir, and he can speak their language. Of course, because they don't speak any, they don't speak English. So they come up to him and, and in Arabic say, sir, we have some questions about the Bible. Would you be able to answer them? And Keo says, yes, I'm your man. And <laughs> just, this is amazing. Let's, let's, take a, let's take stock of what just happened. As they are studying the Bible and they have questions, I don't know exactly when it happened. But God knew it would happen. Yes. And moves him instead of Syria to come to Egypt, inspires him to learn the language and touches his heart so he can pray for God to send somebody as he sits at the station. Yes. His very prayer was already inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes. To make him That's get ready. Point. That's a great point. To sir. get yeah. him to get ready to answer the questions. So yes. he's thinking that he's the one asking God for something when in fact it's God who prepared his heart in that way, which is most of our prayers, isn't it? Yes. Isn't it? I think it is the case that most of our, many of our prayers, especially the ones God answers, was put in our heart by, by God Holy himself Spirit. Yes. to, that's to a prepare great, our heart to do it. That's a brilliant point, sir. <laughs> so Keogh then goes to their village and he baptizes Azza and two other people from the village. Wow. But then he finds, and, and we don't know exactly the mechanics of this, but Keogh becomes impatient with sitting on Cairo station. And maybe nobody else asks him questions. Maybe going into Azagali's village had made him realize that this is what you need to do. So in 1911, George and Marianne Keogh, with their little son, George Arthur Keogh, moved to Upper Egypt. They moved First, they'd actually moved out of Cairo. They made two moves. They moved out of Cairo from the Westerners' quarter to the quarter where most people lived. So they actually crossed the Nile to do that. What did the brethren think of that? We don't know. We don't know. But probably they thought, well, he's, you know, he's, he's, got a, he's living a fever dream because we can't reach the locals. Where were their brethren from? There were European and American missionaries. Okay. Yeah, so the, this Irish guy, yeah, he's Irish. Yeah, he's going to do what he's going to do. <laughs> he's going to do what he's going to do. That's right. So the next move they make is 250 miles up the Nile to the city of Asyut, a provincial city. And Sam, there are no antiquities here. There are no remains of the, of the great years of the, the Egyptian pharaohs. So almost no e Europeans ever go to Asyut. And actually, my wife and I had the privilege of going there in 2012. Uh, and it was a six-hour train ride even then, a six-hour mm. train ride from Cairo to Asyut, going up the, the, the course of the Nile. Um, and even then, we never saw another white face while we were there. So it's just not a place if that that's people... the case today, imagine... Right. There, there, would have been a, there would have been a few British people because Britain was, in theory... Egypt was self-governed, but in practice, it was a British protectorate. It was a quasi-colony. Mm -hmm. So there must have been a couple of other British officials there. But this is a, a big thing to go out of Cairo and into Upper Egypt. We don't know how long it takes, but it was, it was several months later. He has his first contact with a man called Yakub Bishai Yakub. Yakub lived in the village of Beni Adi, which even today is about an hour's drive out of Asyut. I've, again, we were able to visit there when we, when we were there in 2012. So it must have taken longer then. 
But Yakub Bishai Yakub is a Christian. There is a Christian community in this village of Beni Adi. And Yakub has been studying the Bible and he's struck by the fourth commandment. You know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord. And so he and his family start keeping the seventh day Sabbath, hmm. which makes them ostracized by their local Christian community. Um, and at one point, the postman who comes around to deliver letters says, there's a European in a suit who's as crazy as you are. And so Yakub says, okay, and writes him a letter and gives it to the postman who delivers it to Keo. Keo, for whatever reason, you know, he's made this big transition and yet he still has a little degree of hesitancy. He's not sure whether this is sincere. Um, maybe somebody has warned him and said, and later actually the police chief says, you've got to be careful of Beniardi because be, you could be attacked by bandits. For whatever reason, Keo ignores one letter. He ignores a second letter, and then Yacoub writes to him and said, how many times did, the, did Cornelius the centurion have to approach the apostle Peter before Peter responded? So when Keo gets the third letter that says that, he says, okay. So he goes to Beniardi, he makes the contact. The remarkable thing is between November 1912 and May 1913, Keo baptized 18 men and seven women. So remember... This is Pentecost. <laughs> and actually, that's what one of the European church leaders says when he comes to visit Egypt and finds out. He says, this is a modern day of Pentecost. <laughs> in the space of seven months, he's baptized 20 people when in the previous I like they, this guy. <laughs> well, so they more than double the entire membership yeah. in Egypt. Um, and another 16 people were baptized by 1917. Another 16 people. So he's baptized 36 people in the space of five years. But if you think now, of course, today, if you were in Inter-America, the Central American or the Caribbean or Sub-Saharan Africa or, or South America or the Philippines, you would say 36 people in five years, that's nothing. But again, we have to remember the context. This is the Middle East where Muslims are almost impossible to reach and local Christians are almost as hard to reach. And so 36 people in five years, it is like a... It, it is like the day of Pentecost. Absolutely. And let's, let's be clear. What did he do? Right. And he's actually the 16th European or American Adventist missionary to go to Egypt. And none of them have any success. So this is the real question. How did he achieve this success? And the answer is he tried to embody Christ. Today we would say it was an incarnational ministry. Now, we have quite a number of Keo's papers that survive in, at Newbold College, and we have some in the General Conference archives. And I presume that's where Keo House comes from. Keo House, the men's dormitory at Newbold College, where I lived. I'm not sure if you lived I, there. I it's, didn't. No. I, I, I lived there for a time as a student. This is where Keo House comes from. Now, from his, he never actually write, sits down and says, this is my theory of mission, because he's an intensely practical man. Mm -hmm. But you can work out what his principles of mission are. And the first is to be incarnational, is to embody Christ. The second is plainly to know the local language and have the insights into the local culture that the language gives. Because you and I have both learned other languages and we know that it's not just a matter of different words. There's a different culture and learning the language gives you an insight into the culture. Yes. And so 
The th that's his second principle, but the third is then to adapt to the local culture. And Keo had a remarkable ability to make friends with people. And he could do that, I think, partly because it wasn't a tactic. He was genuinely a friendly person. It's interesting, in his 70s, indeed into his 80s, he taught at Newbold College. Okay. And he was better, this is in the 50s and the early 60s, a period of youth rebellion. He was better at making friends with students than people who were much younger. And I think it's because he had a gift for friendship that God gave him. Um, so, essentially, make yourself available as close to the people that you try to reach as possible. That's exactly it, Sam. That's, that's, that, that, so, God op it's God who prepared Jacob. It's God who prepared that guy in the train station. Yes. But God needed somebody to be there representing him. That's the call that he has for us. And, and God prepared Keo him. was that guy. God prepared him as well. And what does Keo do? This is... When, when my wife and I visited Beni Adi and also Tatalia, where Keo also founded a church, Keo founded three local churches in villages plus one in Asyut. Um, and local believers today still tell the stories handed down from their grandparents and great-grandparents of how this white man, this European, did what Westerners never did. He came into their mud brick houses. He sat on the dirt floor with them because that's where you sit. And he ate their food. That's so beautiful. That's what Jesus did. <laughs> it's, what, it's what Jesus did. And the, the interesting thing is, in Middle Eastern culture, it's a sin not to be hospitable. Right. If somebody comes as a guest, you have to offer them hospitality. And my wife and I experienced that. And many of Keo's hosts were very poor people. Even today, Sam, you know, driving around there, um, you could see people carrying cut bulrushes from the Nile on the backs of donkeys. They have phones today and even mobile phones, but otherwise the culture, it, it, it looks like it could have done when Jesus was alive. And when visitors come, they do offer and, food or whatever right, but, it is that they have. Right, they offer the best they have, but they're poor. They're not wealthy people even today, so they were even poor then. And what, so the food they could offer him was often not very appetizing. And one of the dishes they offered him was something called mesh, which is an Egyptian cheese made by fermenting salty cheese for months or even years. And it's notorious for its strong taste and for the fact that it can be worm-ridden. Worms get into it. So it's got a very strong flavor and it's likely to have worms in it. And there is a family in Beniardi who treasure the story of how Keo ate mesh with their parent, grandparents and great-grandparents, even though they could all see the worms in it. Keo comes into their house, sits on the floor and eats what they put before him, even when it's mesh. <laughs> Which is precisely what Jesus said to do. When you enter a house, eat what they, what they give you. Yes. Because the worker is worth his wages. Exactly. And proclaim to them that the kingdom of God has come near to them. Yes. And I don't know how I never heard of these stories having studied at Newbold, but it is priceless to know that there was somebody that did this early on in Adventist right. mission history. Yes. But it took us a while, you said about 60 years, for us to start... Um, for us to take seriously what Keo was doing 60 years ago. Right, and earlier. the problem is what Keo does is individual to him, and he undoubtedly teaches it, but it's kind of 
antithetical to Adventist evangelistic culture. Our culture of evangelism is you go to a place and you have a big public meeting. Now that's just impossible in the Middle East even today and impossible in other parts of the world too. So what do you do if that doesn't work? Well, you start a publishing ministry, you have a vegetarian or a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. But what if these are things too that don't, by their very nature, don't reach the great majority of the local people? And so Keogh, I think he's this idiosyncratic Irishman who nobody can tell what to do. He's going to work things out his own way with the help of the Holy Spirit. People aren't able to learn from him as well as they should. But I think that's partly, again, because people have different expectations. He teaches at Newbold twice, in the early 30s and then again in the late 50s and early 60s. And he undoubtedly tries to teach what he had learned. But I think people, again, it's that Adventist mindset, this is the way we do things. And also, you can't teach somebody to have a gift for friendship or to have an iron stomach, which Keogh must have had, uh, though undoubtedly he becomes ill at various times. But you can't teach that. And so, I, and so the, the, the tragedy is Keogh, who is doing these things that are innovative by the standards of any Protestant missionary. He's not just doing something that's cutting edge for Adventists. He's doing something that's cutting edge for any Protestant missionary. And he's doing it before anybody else is doing it because he's learning it while he's there. And also he does it partly out of instinct. And the tragedy, Sam, is that these innovative methods get forgotten. But, you know, Keogh is... The great thing about Keogh, too, is he's not afraid. He's willing to trust local people, of course, because he's gone into that. He, and, and by eating what they put in front of him, he honors their hospitality. So he, whether it's somebody's taught him this or it's instinctive, he learns that culture of hospitality and he honors them. And so then they're going to feel obliged even more. And with the language, he's able to tell the Bible stories in a way that is meaningful to the local people. Because he's not using a translator who may be a little stilted. He's doing it himself and he's able to put it into a framework. And he actually moves, he's, being, he's finding so much success in Beniardi, he moves his family there. He doesn't, so he's already moved to Asyut. But at least that's a provincial city and it's got the train line. Now he's moved out into the real, the real rural Egypt. Even today it's a little difficult to get to. And... The police chief in a suit actually tells him, don't move to Beni Adi because we can't protect you from bandits. But Keo says, no, I trust the local people. And so not only he lives there, but his wife and children move with him as well, because by this time he's had another daughter um, born in a suit. So um, what, I, what I learned from this, David, is follow whatever local structure there is. Yes. But keep your eyes open for new methods and test it. And become part Try of it. And become part of the local community. Yeah. You can't do success. Well, in some parts of the world, you can do successful mission while remaining apart from the local community. Because you can be a public evangelist, you can have a big public meeting, and you're relying on local people to do the follow-up. You're just the preacher. So there are parts of the world where you can have evangelistic success being apart from the community. But in other parts of the world, you have to become part of the community and learn the culture. And that's what George Keogh and his family do. Let me pull that thread a little bit. Someone has a friend that they invite 
to church or to study the Bible with or that they are connected to. And then they come and visit the preacher who may be a Westerner who is there for two, three weeks. And they learn some things and they make some decisions and they decide to give their life to Christ. Is this the evangelism of the preacher or the friend who is living life alongside them? Well, that's a good question. So the true answer is both. Yes. Because without, without either part, you don't right. have the result. Right. So you need both parts. And even for media, because you could, you know, have a, and we have 950 or so television channels around the world and Hope Channel and so on, and thousands of radio stations, even through the digital. We have all this media, publishing, TV, radio, digital, that we reach people that have never been face-to-face with. Is that remote? No. Because if you're going to communicate with them, we still need to do, through media, what Keo did, which is to learn their language. Yes. Our videos for TikTok are very different from whatever we produce for YouTube, which is different still to what we produce for Instagram in multiple languages, for multiple countries. So you need to learn the language of the people you are reaching, not just the, the tongue or the dialect, but the, but the other things involved in language. You need to learn their, their cultural mindset, yes. the way of operating in that, in, Absolutely. That, in that mindset or in that digital format. And at least in the digital, when they speak to us, when they comment and so on, we need to comment back. It's a dialogue that we have, right. which is often difficult to do because of scalability issues. But at least in the World Church channels, we answer every comment, we read everything, and we comment on it. Why? Because we are still trying to do that. You're still trying to create community with these people. That's right. You're doing it remotely, but you're still trying to create community. And caring for them enough that you would pray for them and connect with them long term. Sam, this has been a great conversation. Let's pick it up again another time and let's talk more about Keo and his remarkable journey and his remarkable success and about his principles for mission because he does have other principles as well. Let's do that. Thank you so much for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv or on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel or keep listening on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities today, ones you can be part of, whether remote, whether at some distance away or local to you, go to VividFaith.com. That's VividFaith.com. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world.